The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Messia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger and subscribe to one of our newsletters by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Our guest today is Jim Morrill, a longtime journalist here in Charlotte who's seen it all. He retired in 2021 after a 40-year career at the Charlotte Observer, where he was known for his coverage of government and politics. But Jim has stayed active. He hosted an elections podcast for WFAE, and he writes regularly for various publications. One of the nice things about retirement is you can choose how you like to spend your time. And Jim, I'm thankful you've agreed to spend a little time talking to me. I'm happy to do it. I just wanted to dive into an article you wrote recently for Charlotte Magazine. I'm excited to talk to you. This, this was the cover story for February 2023's issue of Charlotte Magazine called Who's in Charge in Charlotte? And the reason I was really interested in it, because I think it really goes to the heart of who we are as a city and how decisions get made. It really goes to sort of the character of, of this place that, that we live in. And I know you came to Charlotte in the early 1980s. When you first moved here, what was Charlotte like compared to what it's like today? Oh, it was like a night and day difference in a way. You know, in terms of the city itself, it still seemed like a big city to me because I was coming immediately from Rock Hill, South Carolina, which was a lot smaller then than it is now. It's growing a lot too. But Charlotte, Charlotte was a, you know, had, the downtown was like a ghost town. Uptown was a ghost town in those days. And, you know, we worked at the Observer at Stonewall and Tryon Street, where you worked for a long time too. And, you know, just getting a bite to eat at lunch was impossible almost. I mean, you had to walk blocks literally to get anything decent. You know, there were no hornets, there were certainly no panthers, there were there was just a lot less of a lot of things, you know, no light rail. So it was a uh, it was it was different, you know, and I started covering the city, city of Charlotte. That's what I came to Charlotte for, what the observer, the job they gave me. You know, it was interesting. It was in the old city hall building, which is across the street from the new government center. And, you know, you could walk in there and walk into the mayor's office and, you know, shoot the breeze with with him at the time. And the first mayor I worked with or covered was Eddie Knox, who was there for, I think, four years. And, you know, it was a a different city in that sense. You know, there were uh, Republicans, Democrats, everybody had had a voice on the city council and a role to play. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot different time. You know, I, I cover a lot of city issues now. And nowadays, it's hard to have that same kind of relationship where you just call somebody up and they tell you what's going on. You know, they the, they refer you to PR people, they send you a press press statement, that, yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, the decisions are made a lot differently, which is a lot of what this article is about. So at the time in Charlotte, how did things work? Who made the decisions and, and how did things get done? Well, you know, the business community worked with city leaders a lot. You know, I, I lead the story with anecdotes about the group, which, frankly, we didn't really find out about until for years after that. But, you know, it was Hugh McCall and Ed Crutchfield from First Union and Bill Lee from Duke Power, Ralph Neal, who was our, our publisher at The Observer, and, you know, maybe a couple other people. And, and you mentioned, they, I think, John Bell, the former John mayor Bell. or the, the retail giant. The retail giant and the mayor. These people controlled a lot of, uh, had a lot of influence back then. And, you know, John Belk was a mayor. He was a big retail retailer. So, you know, they could make things happen. And, 
you know, they they work. They had a pretty good working relationship, I think, with the city, the city council, and uh, and the managers back then. You so, know, can I ask you? So, how did they work? I mean, did they did this group, the group they're they're called? Did they meet regularly and, and strategize? And I mean, what did they do exactly? They met periodically. I don't know that they had a regular schedule of meetings, but they would meet at least a couple times at the Lance Snack Food Plant on South Boulevard. You know, they'd go through the cafeteria line down there, and and then they'd go into somebody's office and and have a meeting. But more often, I think they would meet in offices. You know, in Crutchfield's office or Hugh McCall, or even at the Observer. In Ralph Neal's office, and they would, they would talk about something that they they wanted to see happen, whether it was funding for the arts or some civic project, and and uh, they would just sort of try to make it happen, you know. And the newspaper would maybe Ralph wrote columns in the day, and he would he would write about it and uh, get the paper on board, you know. So I think it was a force of personality and, and power. I mean, they had. They had money. They were leading the leading business people in the city. You know, they had the year of the city council, and I think the city was anxious to work with them. Was that because well, did they fund city council campaigns? I mean, you you I mean, people voted, people elected people who who made decisions. I mean, how is it? And I guess by today's standards, it, it's maybe a little head scratching. But I mean, how is it that such a small group of influential people were able to have determine the direction of the city in, in such a big way? Well, you know, I think that, you know, again, Charlotte was different. You know, the city council was different, you know, and I think a lot of city council people came from business backgrounds and some of them worked for some of the companies that were uh, that these guys and they were all guys represented, you know, the banks and uh, and the power company. And uh, so there was sort of a symbiotic relationship there. And don't forget, the city council was different then, too. We had it had just gone to district representation for years and years. The city council was seven at-large members. And then in 1977, there was a referendum. There was some grassroots pressure to change the system. And and they went to a district system and the people approved it in a referendum. And so suddenly you had district representatives. You had a couple of African-American representatives on the on the council and people from different different parts of town. And so they brought different voices. But I think still the, the main thrust of the city leaders at the time was to make Charlotte a boomtown, you know, make something happen. You know, they kept talking about growth. Growth was, growth was really a mantra. People didn't want to be like Atlanta, for sure, because it had its own issues, but people wanted Charlotte to be bigger. Yeah, you wrote in the piece, it sort of struck me, one of the passages you wrote, you said, I'm, I'm quoting here, today it's hard to romanticize the group whose members have died or retired. For all they accomplished, they reflected a city that in many ways no longer exists. All were white men who lived within blocks of each other in Charlotte's toniest neighborhoods. They hardly reflected the city of 40 years ago, let alone now. I thought that was a, an interesting description. I guess when we talk about living within a few um, blocks of each other, we're, we're looking at Eastover and Myers Park mostly, right? <laughs> Good guess, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, what, and what were some of the decisions that this group made and, and how did it shape Charlotte's identity? What were some of the things that they... That they that they did to implement that that vision of, of of growth and development of the city. You know, I think a couple things. I think one, they were interested in the arts, and they brought uh, more arts funding to to the city. And, and you know, we had a pretty good arts scene for the time. I think if you remember, you know, the Observer and other companies, they would the Arts and Science Council 
would have uh, corporate fundraisers, business fundraisers. I mean, they would come to us, the employees and, and you, and you'd be expected to make a contribution and which is not done anymore. So that's one thing they did. And I think they also, uh, Hugh McCall told me they had a vision for um, a vibrant downtown, you know, and so they, they wanted to um, concentrate on an uptown that was sort of the center of the hub of the city that drew people that was solid. You know, they'd seen downtowns in other cities that sort of, you know, withered away and, and the growth went to the suburbs. And, you know, they wanted to maintain a, a strong downtown. And at the time, in, in the early 80s, the city manager at the time, Wendell White, went on a, a you know, kind of authored a program, I think, you know, with city council approval to make downtown more inviting. You know, they planted trees along the roads and just did some improvements that would try to help energize the downtown and uh, bring people to it and make people stay. Was this an approach that was common in the South at the time? I mean, I just think about other cities in the South and how they, you know, the leadership in different cities. And you think of Richmond or you think of Charleston. I mean, certainly, you know, it, it's hard to think of the history of the South without thinking about the, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, Charlotte, mostly, I, I know there was some pride, I think, in Charlotte, or that, that Charlotte had avoided some of the, you know, some of the issues in the civil rights movement that other cities were experiencing, that it was more of a consensus type of approach. I mean, it was this, I mean, just if you could put it in perspective as to how Charlotte at that time, you know, fit into the larger experience in the South. Well, you know, I think when you look at, at Uptown Charlotte, you know, you compare it to Raleigh, for example, I think Raleigh kind of ignored their uptown, their downtown for a long time. And so you saw growth in Raleigh go to other, go to surrounding areas, suburbia. And it's only been in the last decade or so, I think that Raleigh has really, maybe 20 years, that Raleigh has sort of paid more attention to their downtown and preserved some buildings and, you know, brought some life to the downtown. They, they had a, a crazy idea to make their main street, their equivalent of Triumph Street, into a pedestrian mall for years. And it was dead. You know, you, you saw homeless people and not many other people on it at the time. But they opened that street back up. And so, you know, they've come around to it. And I, I think, um, you know, I don't know that much about Atlanta, but I, I know that their suburban areas, you know, sort of prospered and grew a lot. That's why you see all the, all the roads around there that you do, the highways that, you know, I think Growth probably went out before it went back into the downtown area. Now, I'm sure downtown Atlanta is pretty vibrant, too. But Charlotte, you know, these people and the city council made a decision to make downtown a, a destination. Yeah, I know for this piece, you talked to Hugh McCall, the former CEO of Bank of America, Nations Bank. What was his perspective? You know, he said that they had a vision back then. They had a vision of a vibrant downtown, a vi vibrant place. You know, that was where his employees were at the bank. And uh, he realized he, he traveled a lot. You know, he's traveled around the world. And he saw that cities, whether they were in Europe or in certain parts of America, you know, the cities that had vibrant downtowns were cities that thrived, you know, or people living downtown. I mean, Hugh McCall, at even at the time, he uh, had reinvigorated Fourth Ward. Worth Ward used to be a, a neighborhood that was sort of being lost in the in the shuffle, and and he helped reinvigorate that and bring new life to Fourth Ward, and that was really the first part of downtown 
uptown that had residents living there. And so when you have people living downtown, you know, you had a market for things. You know, the more people, the more things there were to do, the more restaurants, the more restaurants, the more people. And he started that in Fourth Ward, which is still an attractive place to live. One of the criticisms of the way Charlotte has grown and developed is a lot of times that it ignored or ran over its history, that it demolished a lot of old buildings in favor of brand new skyscrapers or, you know, things like that. I mean, is there any thought about, you know, looking back, whether the approach that they took was the right approach and the way to grow a city? You know, I think the idea of, um, you know, having a strong central city was was and is a good idea. You know, it, it anchors the city. It gives Charlotte an identity. In the process of doing that, yeah, they tore down a lot of buildings. But um, frankly, some of those buildings probably deserve to be taken down. I mean, Charlotte has, you know, had a love, love and hate affair with its history, I think, because people always want the next shiny object. So the, the bigger the building, the, the, you know, the better. But so we have lost a little bit of history that way. And, and I'm a history major and I love history and that's not good. <laughs> what do you mean? I, they have a, a love, a love hate relationship with his history. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, history is a big part of the South and a big part of, uh, you know, Charlotte's been around for a long time. I mean, George Washington uh, slept here. He called it a trifling place, but he, he was here. So it goes back far, but you know, there's a, Part of Charlotte or part of Charlotte's psyche that likes to look into the future. You know, you kind of forget about forget about the past. Gosh, I mean, look at look at the '60s with urban renewal. You know, I mean, they they just wipe the past away in a lot of a lot of places. Um, you know, that we're still dealing with now. But you know, we wanted to be Atlanta without being Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You know, a place really to put people on the map and to get rid of the NC after Charlotte. I think <laughs> that was probably a losing battle. Still, but people wanted to do it back even back then. You know, we wanted to be world class. You know, that was sort of the dream of a lot of people. You know, from the the group to Harvey Gant and the early mayors around that. You know, that lingered for a long time. Yeah, I mean, one of the other features of Charlotte's identity, it seems to me, and I'd say this is someone who's lived here not as long as you have, but I've been here for twenty five years, is this whole idea of world class city. You know, like you hear it a lot. You used to hear it a lot more. But there's, I think, this sort of lingering insecurity that we're not quite there. You know, it's yeah. like we're, we're constantly looking for affirmation that we are a world-class city or or maybe that we're not a world-class city. What is, what's the deal with that? Why, why is it, why does that exist? Oh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. It's sort of like Sally Fields at the Oscars. You know, you love me, you really love me. Um, you know, I think there always has been sort of a, you know, people felt, Charlotte was wasn't getting the credit it was due, you know, that it had the potential to be always better than it was, you know, or better than it was perceived. Whether it's Charlotte NC, you always had to do that. People kept getting Charlotte mixed up with Charlottesville and Charleston and other places. So I think there always has been sort of this chip on the shoulder of Charlotte, but you know, it's one thing that's made People want to make it make the city better too. You know, it's one reason we have the skyscrapers we do, and and the uptown that we do, and and the airport that we do. You know, a lot of these things. But you're right; you don't hear that so much anymore, do you? No, you don't. I mean, one of the other features of Charlotte is there are so many newcomers here. People have moved here a lot over the years. I mean, Charlotte has, I think, since the 1920s, really been growing pretty quickly, and you've seen a lot of it in the last decade, last couple decades. But one of the features that that gives you, I think, as a city is that you're able to 
have an effect and you're able to be welcomed here. There's not so much of an old guard that are the gatekeepers, at least not not anymore. And so, I mean, as it relates to your piece in, in Charlotte Magazine over who's in charge in Charlotte, let's for, fast forward to today. How are decisions made today you know, compared with how they were made 20, 30 years ago? Well, there are a couple of things. One, the city council um, is more attuned, I think, to the people who elect them, you know, more of a grassroots kind of uh, force. If you look at the, you know, the people who elect the city council for the most part vote in democratic primaries and they're motivated by the people who have more of a voice in the democratic primaries. And the other thing is that the business community, the Hugh McCalls and the Bill Lees and the Rolf Neals, they've, they've passed from the scene generally. Hugh McCall is still involved, but they've largely passed from the scene. And so the business community that they led has also changed a lot, you know, and that has to do with a lot of different factors like globalization and mergers and things like that. And, and so you don't have the business community getting as involved as much, or at least maybe they're picking that up again now. That's what I, that's what somebody told me for the story that the business community is sort of, you know, reasserting itself a little bit. They're getting more involved. What was the group, the, the Business Alliance, that had the Speaker of the House and the President of the of the Senate here just a, a few weeks ago? So they can make things happen like that. And, you know, they can raise money, but I think there's kind of a disconnect now between the elected leaders and the business leaders to some degree that wasn't there before, for better or for worse. You know, you got more voices. You got people who weren't being heard before. I mean, the, the group the McCalls and the Crutchfields and the Billies, they didn't represent a lot of people. Like you said, they were, you know, they didn't represent Charlotte 40 years ago, let alone today. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of the people who didn't have a voice for years have a voice now. And so they're making that belt. Right. I mean, it seems like the decision-making now might be a little messier, but it's more inclusive. Is that fair? I mean, before it sounds like you're saying with the group, they operated a lot by consensus and they were able to sort of make, you know, advance their agenda. And, you know, that's been referred to a lot of times as the Charlotte way. You know, you sort of figure, hash out the details in private and then sort of make it happen. But but nowadays, it seems like, like you said, that you have a lot more voices, a lot more people at the table. And that's going to lead to some disagreements, maybe in, in a way that that hasn't happened in the past. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, if you look at the city council for the last few years, and this is something I alluded to in the story, there had been stories written about the council two, three years ago, four years ago, that, you know, the first millennial council, because they had a lot of new young members, but they couldn't get along. And um, Mayor Pro Tem Julie Iselt, who left office last year, had written and said, in an op-ed that, you know, you can't get by with a lot of Lone Rangers on the on the city council. You have to work together and that she didn't see that working together happening for whatever reason. People had their own ambitions, their own little districts, you know, that they were concerned about. And I heard that too, that some of the district representatives now, and there are what, seven districts on the city council, and some of them kind of uh, lose sight of the big picture in favor of this you know, their own district interest. So you you do have that. 
Interesting. So to the extent there are power brokers today, who are those power brokers? Who is calling the shots to the extent that anybody is? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think, um, you know, Michael Morrisicano just resigned last month, right? Michael Morrisicano was the head of the Foundation for the Carolinas. And from everything I know and have heard about, about Michael Morrisicano, he was a, a sort of the great convener. He knew everybody. He he had diplomatic tendencies. You know, he could talk to a lot of people and he could raise money. So who are the power brokers now? You know, who can do that now? They haven't named a replacement for him yet at full time. So I don't know whether it would come from that person or from, um, you know, there are some other people in the business community who could take the reins, you know, Malcolm Coley, who's a head of EY, who's I think also president or former president of the Charlotte Regional Business Alliance, a group that took the place of the Charlotte Chamber. He's active in a million things. He's also a partner with Hugh McCall in a business arrangement to, you know, seed money, give seed money to black entrepreneurs. You know, so people like that can, and he can raise a lot of money and has raised money for the mayor's racial equity initiative, which is something she's invested in, Mayor Lyles. And so I think you're going to see people emerge like that. Yeah, it just strikes me there are a lot of leaders in in different places all over the city that they might be sort of in their own silos. There's not as much of an overarching top-down type of control as there is a lot of people working on a bunch of different things, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's you know, racial equity initiatives, whether you know, upward mobility, education. I mean, there, there are all sorts of things like that. It's just a question of are they all rowing the, the same direction and, and who's decide who's making the big decisions. It's a little messier, a little messier. You know, one thing I came out of this with, and, and tell me what you think, but it seems like, you know, the way Charlotte politics has evolved, and it's a democratic city in a, in a red state, basically, right? Or a red, you know, we're, we're, we're an island, a blue island in a red area. And certainly the General Assembly's Republican and Republican controlled. And it just seems like uh, maybe, maybe it's time to be a little bit more nonpartisan in, in city elections. Because I think you, when you just have a Democratic primary and Democrats in control, you know, you put a lot of people on the sidelines who don't have a voice in things because it, by the time the general general election comes around, decisions have already been made. People have already been elected. I mean, the number of registered Republicans in Mecklenburg County and Charlotte is certainly smaller than it was, but you you leave a lot of people on the outside looking in. And I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, you want to get people involved. And when you first came, even 25 years ago, Republicans and Democrats were pretty well matched on the city council and the city government. And, you know, Pat McCrory was probably mayor then, if if, if not a Richard Vinder it was. And that, now you just don't see, you know, see those people getting involved. That's a good point. All right, Jim. Well, thanks. I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Tony, thanks for the opportunity. Everybody should check out your piece in the February 2023 edition of Charlotte Magazine about who's in charge in Charlotte. Thanks a lot, to Jim. Thanks a lot to everybody listening today. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Queen City